Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And we want everybody to be able to look at the passage we'll be considering today from God's Word. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. And those Bibles they have are marked at Matthew chapter 5. One of the claims that detractors sometimes make regarding Christianity is that it, like other religions, is really just an escape for people who cannot handle reality. Now, for some religions, that charge certainly sticks. There are what I call the denial religions, because they deny very obvious aspects of reality. For example, some deny that sickness really exists, but rather is simply an illusion of the mind. These are the people who refuse medical treatment because it would violate their religious convictions. Then there are the, den- there are the deniers, but there are also what I call the deflectors. Those who emphasize only the good things in life in order to deflect attention from life's unpleasant realities. If you listen to the TV preachers, which I strongly, strongly discourage then you'll find a steady emphasis on feel-good stories about people who are healthy and wealthy and prosperous because they did something to impress God, usually a sizable gift to the preacher's ministry. The Bible neither denies nor deflects the realities of life in a fallen world. It tells us the origin of sickness and disease and violence and death. And it also tells us of God's work in reversing the effects of sin centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the Bible deals with the time in between, the entrance of sin into God's good world in the past, and the restoration of his world to its original design in the future. The Bible's story is told in the here and now, in the down and dirty of life in a fallen world. And in the most well-known sermon of all time, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of things like being poor in spirit and mourning over sin. These beatitudes are not happy talk like a televangelist, but they're reality talk from God the Son. And in verse number 10 of Matthew 5, he says this, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this is the eighth and final beatitude, or blessing, with which Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I say this passage is the last, the eighth, but as you read it, as we just read it, it looks like there's more than one. In all the other seven, the word blessed is used once in a single verse, but here we have three verses together, and in the first two of those three, Jesus says blessed in each. So notice in verse 10, blessed are those, and then in verse 11, blessed are are you. So why are not verses 10 and 11 two separate blessings? Why aren't there nine of these instead instead of eight? Well, here's why. 
Because the content of verses 11 and 12 is simply an explanation, an expansion of what Jesus says in verse 10. When he says in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then he goes on to expand on that in verses 11 and 12. And another reason that this is one blessing in these three verses and not two is that verse 10 doesn't have the, uh, the normal ending that you have uh, with the, the rest. Or excuse me, verse 11 does not have the normal ending you have the, with the rest. For theirs is or for yours is. Verse 10 has that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then you don't have that in verses 11 and 12 because it's an explanation of what he said in verse 10. And here's another reason why it's really one beatitude, one blessing, rather than two separate blessings. Notice that there's an important shift that I'll emphasize a little bit later in the language. It goes from the third person to the first person. Throughout these Beatitudes, Jesus has said things like, blessed are those, or blessed are the peacemakers. But then in verse 11 here, he says, blessed are you. So he is expanding and explaining what he says in verse 10, and he's focusing it in a very personal way. And then the last reason that this is one blessing rather than two separate blessings is because this appears at the end of Jesus' lists of blessings, and it says the same thing in verse 10 that he began with way back in verse 3. Verse 3, remember, says, or you can look at it, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he kind of bookends that with verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has here what's called an inclusio, a beginning and an end. And today in verses 10 through 12, we have the end of the eight Beatitudes. This is the eighth and final blessing that begins the Sermon on the Mount. Now imagine being in the crowd when Jesus spoke these amazing words. You can be blessed even while you're persecuted. One of the Puritan commentators believed the reason that Jesus repeated himself was because the statement was so absolutely incredible. And so he, in effect, said it again in verses, 10, verses 11 and 12. This persecution that Jesus speaks of is the result of the seven previous blessings that he's pronounced. He's saying that if you're the kind of person that I described in verses 3 through 9, the result will often be what we just read in verses 10 through 12. So that raises a question, at least for me. Why would anyone want to live as a genuine Christian, as Jesus has described in verses 3 through 9, with values that are radically different from the world, if the result is difficulty, even persecution? We'll answer that a bit later, but for now, I want to remind you that the results of living out the Christian values that Jesus has given in this sermon are not all negative. When you come into a message like this, and we're talking about being persecuted. So that's not a real pick-me-up. That's not something, by the way, you will hear the TV guys talk about. But it's in the Bible a lot. But it's not all negative. In fact, verses 10 through 12 give us but one of the consequences of genuine Christian faith. We're going to see next week in verses 13 through 16 three more consequences. 
Jesus says there, if you are and you do what I've said, then you will be the salt of the earth. In Bible times, salt served as a preservative to keep food from decaying. We're going to see next week that the presence of real Christians in a society restrains the effects of evil in that society. And Jesus says in that following passage in verses 13 through 16, you will be light in a darkened world. Light that illuminates individual people, but illuminates the society as a whole. And Jesus says there as well, your good deeds may be the instrument that God uses to move people to faith and to praising him. So the results of living a genuine, radical, Christ-centered life are not all negative. But Jesus is telling us here, they will often be. It will often result in persecution. This first result of transformed living is because of the other seven blessings that Jesus has given. But it particularly follows logically from the one right before it in verse 9. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers. The peace you seek, though, as a Christian, is not appeasement. It does not seek peace at all costs. Rather, it's peace on the basis of truth, so that all who are willing can be reconciled, but not everyone is. And that's why, as we saw last week, Romans chapter 12 says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Notice, it may not be possible. You do what you're to do, and then the reconciliation may occur, but it requires two people to cooperate. And so you're to be a peacemaker. And as a peacemaker, you're pursuing this on the basis of truth, but not everyone wants peace. Some people will not make peace, and so there will be opposition to those who pursue that peace. In the political realm, Egyptian President Anwar Sadat was assassinated in 1981 by his own countrymen because he dared to sign a peace treaty with Israel three years earlier. And likewise, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was killed by a fellow Israeli because he had the audacity to seek peace with Palestinians and with Arabs. And here is Jesus saying, I'm telling you to be like this and to live like this. But I'm also saying that when you are and when you do, This is what you can expect. People who don't want what you're giving, people who don't want the peace that you're pursuing based upon truth, will often persecute you. Let's ask God to help us then as we look at Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Father, thank you for quieting our hearts, clearing our minds so that we can focus upon the truth of your word. Lord, help us to be people who want to be like Jesus, and as a result of being like Jesus, are willing, even rejoicing and glad, when we suffer what Jesus suffered. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to look at the outline that we, as every week, have inserted in your program. We'll be looking at three major points, some sub-points out of this passage. So if you have that, please take a look. And I say, first of all, Christian persecution is about Jesus. Christian persecution is about Jesus. He says in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, this is about being persecuted for righteousness, not foolishness. Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who are persecuted for something in particular. That something in particular is righteousness, it's not foolishness. 
Now I say that for this reason. Christians sometimes engage in foolish behavior, and then when people push back, we call it persecution. But Peter warned against this in his first letter when he said, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So you can suffer, you can have retaliation from others, but it may not be because of righteousness on your part. It can be, and sometimes is unfortunately, because of foolishness on the part of Christians. As an illustration, my wife spent some time after high school down in Pensacola, Florida at a Christian college that I don't recommend. I do recommend Clearwater Christian College, but I don't recommend Pensacola Christian College. And when she was down there, she told me one of the things that stood out to her as she was gaining knowledge of the town and and driving around was she would see these guys on the street corners. Now, mind you, you're down in Pensacola. She's just gotten down there. It's August. It is sweltering. They are in full suits. Everybody who's in their car and has air conditioning, which is everybody, has their windows rolled up with the air conditioning on, and these guys are on the corner screaming at people as they go by. They're street preachers. Now, I have nothing against street preaching, but I do have something against screaming at people who have their windows up and their air conditioning on. I have a book called The Gospel Blimp. It's about some well-meaning Christians in a small town who decided to get the gospel out by means of a blimp that dragged scripture banners behind it, and they dropped tracts that they called gospel bombs into backyards. Now, this is satirical. But it's written by a pastor because he's seen all kinds of shenanigans go on in churches. And so he wrote the Gospel Blimp. And at first, the townspeople put up with the intrusion. But their tolerance changed to hostility when the Christians installed a loudspeaker and they began assaulting the people with gospel broadcasts. The local newspaper then put out an editorial that read, For some weeks now, our metropolis has been treated to the spectacle of a blimp with an advertising sign attached at the rear. The sign does not plug cigarettes or a bottled beverage, but the religious beliefs of a particular group in our midst. The people of our city are notably broad-minded, and they've good-naturedly submitted to this attempt to proselyte. But last night, a new refinement, some would say debasement, was introduced. We refer, of course, to the airborne sound truck, the invader of our privacy, that raucous destroyer of communal peace. That night, after that editorial, the gospel blimp was sabotaged. And, of course, the Christians saw it as what? Persecution. Some years ago, when I was working my computer job as a computer programmer, I was on a contract at a firm in Ann Arbor. And within the first week that I was there and I was learning some of the people in the department, I found out that there was one guy in our department that everybody disliked. Everybody disliked. And after I met him, I'm thinking to myself, why does everybody not like him? And after he had introduced himself and just his mannerisms, I've thought, I've seen guys like this before. I think I know the deal. I'm afraid I know the deal. He's a Christian. And not only a Christian, I bet he's going to be a Baptist. (laughs) Lo and behold, all my predictions came true. He was indeed a professing Christian and a Baptist who annoyed everyone in the department. The persecution that Jesus blesses is not the so-called persecution of the jerk or the sanctimonious. It's what results from those who are truly 
righteous. And Jesus told us what this righteousness looks like in verses 7 through 9 that we saw last week. Remember back in verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then we saw last week in verses 7 through 9 a picture of what this righteousness looks like. It includes being merciful and pure and pursuing peace. Now that's real righteousness. That's the kind of righteousness that Jesus blesses if it results in persecution. You think to yourself, well, why would anything like that result in persecution? Why would someone who's merciful and pure and pursuing peace ever be persecuted? Well, it's a testimony to the fallenness of the world we live in that such a person can and often is persecuted with insults, physical harm, and slander. Verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. When it says in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, that phrase insult you is literally to cast in one's teeth. We might say they throw it in your face. So blessed are you when people throw it in your face. And that happens to Christians. When I was a a boy playing hockey in a league, my dad was a pastor. And my dad and my mom had one rule for me about playing sports. You can play as long as the schedule for the sports league does not conflict with your church responsibilities. You will not play on Sunday morning. You will be in God's house on Sunday morning. By the way, parents, that's a very good rule. A very good rule. But what it meant for me was uh, I was on the third line, demoted to the third line, rather than being on uh, another line on the hockey team. But I was glad just to, to play. So I was often at church while people were playing. And I can remember as a kid one time sitting in the locker room. We had lost. I had probably done something boneheaded. And one of the dads of one of the guys on our team who fancied himself as a coach, he really didn't have an official position, but they just let him come in and rant sometimes. And he comes in and he's, he's ranting at guys who made bonehead plays. And then he says, and where's Brown? At church? And there I am over in the corner going, no, I'm over here having church to myself, praying that you won't kill me. That's just as a kid. But what about the conscientious worker who's been faithful to his or her company for 20 years, but's repeatedly passed over for a promotion because they're not deemed to be a team player? What that means is they don't go out and drink with the rest of the crew. What about the friendly student who is excluded because she does not affirm all that's said in her circle of classmates? What about the housewife or church member who's ostracized because they will not engage in gossip with other housewives or church members? You may be insulted, may be excluded, you may be persecuted. The word that's rendered persecuted has the root idea of pursue or chase. A good translation is harass. Blessed are you when you are harassed. People are harassed in many ways in what we call restricted access nations, nations like China. Helen Carroll could tell us something about harassment in China, where that harassment might mean that you're watched closely, sometimes questioned, other times arrested. I saw some statistics about Christians in other parts of the world. I just want to share those with you. 
Because in the comfortable confines of American Christianity, friends, we don't think about the persecution, the extreme harassment that many face around the world. Christians are the most persecuted religious group worldwide. An average of at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Christ, according to our State Department. One of the worst countries in the world for persecution of Christians is North Korea. With the exception of four official state-controlled churches, Christians in North Korea face the risk of detention in prison camps, severe torture, and in some cases execution for practicing their religious beliefs. North Koreans who are suspected of having content contact with South Korean or other foreign missionaries in China, and those caught in possession of a Bible have been known to be executed. In 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecutions, Christians are being persecuted by Islamic extremists. Jesus says the persecution may take the form of insult or harassment, including physical harm, but also slander, speaking falsely about you. And we see that today in our country. When opposition to what God calls perversion is called homophobic or even hate. You're considered to be intolerant if you believe that there's such a thing as absolute truth when everyone is sure that it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so Christian persecution is about Jesus. And I say in your outline, it's about Jesus because of righteousness from him. Righteousness from him. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when people insult, persecute, falsely say, because of me. Now I mentioned earlier that there's been this subtle but important shift in language from verses 3 through 9 and now in verses 10 and 11. The pronoun in verse 11 is you. In verse 10 and through the Beatitudes, it's been those or thee. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, verse 3. Those who mourn, verse 4. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6. And it's blessed are the merciful, verse 7. The pure, the peacemakers, in verses 8 and 9. But now he says, blessed are you when people insult, persecute, and speak falsely of you. Now remember, friends. That when Jesus gives this Sermon on the Mount, there is a large crowd that has gathered. But initially, the Bible tells us, as we saw in our first week in the sermon, he had summoned his closest associates, his first followers, his disciples around him. And this large crowd is, in effect, listening in on what he's saying to those disciples. He's been speaking to the whole audience of what a Christian profile looks like. And now in my mind's eye, I can see him turning now to the select few who have chosen to follow him, turning to them specifically and saying, in essence, since you fit the profile that I've just given, then you are going to be the people that will be insulted and persecuted and slandered. Now why? Because the world cannot tolerate the kind of life that Jesus describes in these Beatitudes. One commentator says, Poverty of spirit runs counter to the pride of the unbelieving heart. Those whom the world admires are the self-sufficient who need nothing else, not the poor in spirit. 
the mourning, repentant heart that sorrows over its sin and the sins of society is not appreciated by the world. The gentle and meek person, the one who has strength not to take up a personal offense, is regarded as weak by those who do not know Christ. Conventional wisdom is meekness is weakness. Hungering and thirsting for the spiritual, for Christ, is foreign and repugnant to a world that lusts after only that which it can touch and taste. The truly merciful person who not only feels compassion and forgiveness, but who gives it out of, that's, and is out of step with the grudge-bearing callousness of our age, this person's an awkward, embarrassing rebuke to the uncaring. The pure, single-minded heart focused on God provides a convicting contrast to impure, self-focused culture. The peacemaker is discomforting because he'll not settle for a cheap, counterfeit peace and has an embarrassing inclination to wage peace. Christians are persecuted. Christian persecution is about Jesus, about righteousness that comes from him that he's described in verses 3 through 9. And then I say in your outline. It's because of representation of him. Christians are persecuted. If they're persecuted for the right reasons, it's because of righteousness that we have that comes from Jesus. And then it's because of the fact that we represent Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Do you see this link to Jesus? It's because you're linked to Jesus and you're representing Jesus that persecution will occur. You're representing the one who claims to be God and therefore who makes demands of exclusive obedience. This Jesus said famously in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so let's apply this to our culture now. Let me ask you what you would say to the oft-repeated statement. You know, we all pray to the same God, whether you call him Allah or Yahweh or whatever. What would you say to that? We all pray to the same God. Just use different names. Allah, Yahweh, God, whatever. Friends, the God that we pray to became man. He became man and walked the earth 2,000 years ago. And he made absolutely exclusive claims to his deity and his lordship. And those are non-negotiable. Not only did he make these exclusive claims, he came with a mission, and that mission meant he died on the cross and culminated in his rising from the dead. So how can one, how could a Christian ever say, we all pray to the same God when... Here's what the Quran says. And for their saying, Verily we have slain the Messiah, Jesus the son of Mary, an apostle of God. Yet they slew him not, and they crucified him not, but they had only his likeness. They did not really slay him, but God took him up to himself. 
Do you all understand that Islam teaches Jesus was not crucified? And we all pray to the same God? Or when the Quran says, the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was only a messenger of Allah, and his word which he conveyed unto Mary, and a spirit from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers, and say not three, cease, it is better for you. Allah is only one God. For it is removed from his transcendent majesty that he should have a son. Now, I have a class I teach called What's the, What's the Difference Between the World's Religions? Where we delve into what Islam believes. But just for here, let me just note that Islam has a complete misunderstanding of what Christianity teaches about Jesus as the Son of God. They believe, they actually believe, that it means that the father consorted with someone to actually sire a son. Jesus is God the Son, eternally God the Son. And he is God the Son. And when he walked the earth, this is what he said in John 8, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And that, friends, could not be more significant. I am. Because in the ears of those who heard it, when they heard him say, I am, they're thinking of Exodus chapter 3. When God spoke to Moses and Moses said, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? He said, tell him, I am has sent you. I, God, have sent you. I am that I am. And Jesus says, before Moses, even before Abraham, I am. And notice what they did. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him because he had blasphemed, claiming to be God. And the Bible directly says that Jesus is God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this one who is God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christian persecution is about Jesus. Secondly, Christian persecution is about the world. Christian persecution is about the world. Now, when we say the world, we don't mean the physical environment, the earth. When the Bible uses the word world in a negative sense, it's talking about the value system of those who do not have a relationship with God. And those who belong to, and that's why I have it in quotation marks then in your outline. Christian persecution is about something wrong with the world. Those who belong to the world do not thankfully, persecute every time they might like to. Rather, they do so when they can or when they perceive that it really matters. That is, they're not always able to or in settings where it might be thought polite, but if they're in environments where they can, make no mistake, they will. Things like university campuses. And I've experienced personally that kind of persecution. I was denied grades when I was in speech class, and I had to confront the professor, not because of the form of my speaking, but because of the content of what I said. Common grace keeps unbelievers from doing all the evil that they possibly could to Christian. God restrains that by his common grace. But friends, don't mistake God's common grace to mean that unbelievers are better than the world says they are. The world hates Christ and hates in turn those who represent Christ. 
Now, why? I say in your outline. The world loves conformity. Christian persecution is about the world, a world that loves conformity. And here I'm speaking of conformity in thought, not necessarily in matters of taste or preference, but in how we think. You need to get on board or you will be ridiculed or worse. And that conformity will sometimes be physically coerced. Islam, communism. When I visited China a couple of times, I noticed how the Christians that I was privileged to teach there sang when we worshiped together. They sang with such enthusiasm. Now, taking nothing away from their genuine expression of heartfelt praise, you know one of the reasons that they sing with such enthusiasm? Yes, it's that they love the Lord. They're singing to and about. But it's also because that gathering of Christians is one of the few expressions of individualism that they are afforded because everything is coerced uniformity. There might be physical coercion, but there is often intellectual coercion. You know that the biblical worldview, friends, has only a handful of ideas. But those handful of ideas are foundational to everything else. And if you get a grip on these and you extrapolate those, you can see the world as it truly is. They are these. God is, and he has spoken in Scripture. That's the first and foundational truth of a biblical worldview. God is, and he has spoken in Scripture. Man and his world are fallen and are in need of restoration outside of himself and itself. And God became man to do both. I mean, in a nutshell, that's a biblical worldview, and everything flows out of that. God is, and God has spoken in Scripture. Man and his world are fallen and are in need of restoration from outside of himself and itself, and God became man to do both of those. And yet, the world does not believe those foundational truths, that God is or that God has spoken or that man is evil. At worst, man is neutral. The Bible teaches that man is sinful. And then our views on everything flow from that. Be ready to be harmed then or ridiculed if you fail to conform. The world loves conformity. But I say in your outline, the world hates holiness. The world loves conformity, but it hates holiness. The foundational reason that the person Jesus, the persons Jesus is speaking of are persecuted is because those persons are like Christ, as explained in verses 3 through 9. And you know that the world hates a person like that because the world hates Christ, whom that person represents. And how do we know that the world hates Christ? We had God in our midst 2,000 years ago. He walked among us. People were able to eat with him and, and, and hear him and talk with him. And what did humanity do? God was with us and we killed Everybody hates holiness because everybody hates a curve breaker. You all know what I mean by a curve breaker? You know, we want everybody to be like us and somebody who breaks the curve. And somebody who breaks the curve, especially in the moral, spiritual realm, is going to be despised and even hated. One commentator said, 
The world blesses the rich. Jesus blesses the poor. The world blesses the carefree. But Jesus blesses those who mourn over evil. The world blesses the assertive and aggressive. Jesus blesses the meek and gentle. The world blesses those who get what they want. Jesus blesses those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. The world prizes the trouble-free life. Jesus tells his followers to rejoice in persecution. Christian persecution is about Jesus. It says something about the world. And lastly, Christian persecution is about us. It's about us. Now, what about us? Well, it is, first of all, about our relationship, our relationship to God. And because we have an ongoing spiritual bond to God, an abiding link to the living Christ, then that Christian persecution will be aimed at, at us. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know quite well, says 1 Thessalonians 3, that we were destined for trials. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And then the apostles, as they were preaching in the churches in the book of Acts, in Acts 14 said this, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Few people who've lived in our time have understood and expressed this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know this Lutheran pastor who was executed by the, the Nazis. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And he said this, Suffering is the road to discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one historical Christian statement of faith called the Augsburg Confession defines the church as the community of those who are, quote, persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship, he says, means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it's therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of grace. R. Kent Hughes says this, though, about the lack of persecution in our present-day church. The greatest reason there's so little persecution is that the church has become like the world. If you want to get along, the formula is simple. Approve of the world's morals and ethics, at least outwardly. Live like the world lives. Laugh at its humor. Immerse yourself in its entertainment. Smile benignly when God is mocked. Act as if all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on moral issues of the day. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth sailing. But the fact is, the church must be persecuted or it is no church at all. People need to be told that if they follow Christ, there will be a price to pay. It will affect how they get along at school. It will affect their profile at the club. It will affect how they make their living. The early church had no doubt about where a believer's duty lay. One hundred years after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, a man approached the second century Christian leader, Tertullian, with a problem. His business interests and Christianity conflicted. He ended his presentation to Tertullian by asking, What can I do? I must live. And Tertullian replied, Must you? When it came to a choice between loyalty to Christ and living, Tertullian held that the real Christian chooses Christ. Now, friends, 
The reason that Christians crumble when in difficult times of whatever sort, on the range of uh, the range of trials and difficulty to physical persecution, whatever form that difficulty takes, many Christians crumble, and here's why. They have failed to prepare for it in good times. We crumble in bad times because we fail to prepare in good times. Hear this. If you're all about pleasure now, how will you ever face deprivation then? If you're all about the here and now, how will you be motivated to live in a way now based on reward later? If you're all about what people think of you, how will you take a stand for Jesus when it will cost you? Let me give you a couple of ways to prepare now for the suffering that will. Just a couple quickly. Friends, begin serving your God, but not just serving your God, serving your God with sacrifice. Serving your God so that it costs you something. Serving your God using the gifts that he owns, by the way, and gave to you when it's not comfortable for you and when it interrupts your schedule. That'll prepare you for suffering later. Serve with sacrifice. And then secondly, stand with conviction. Whatever sphere the Lord has placed you in, you are to represent Christ accurately with the demeanor of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. But you are at your job and at school and in your family and in your neighborhood to stand with conviction for Christ. Then you will prepare for whatever God has for you in the future. This Christian persecution is about us. It's about our relationship. Last in your outline. It's about our reward. When you're persecuted in whatever form, Jesus says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Now this does not mean that insults and being harassed, perhaps physically, are being slandered or pleasant. They obviously are not. But verse 12 goes on to tell us why we can rejoice even in the midst of these things. Jesus says this in verse 12, For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this word reward can be misleading because it sounds like we earn something by our suffering. But notice, Jesus does not say we gain a reward, but that our reward is great. And we have a reward both in the present and in the future. In the present, if you're suffering, it links you to those who have gone before you. They suffered, but were commended by God. In the first part of your Bible, God sent men to speak to the people, but they often ignored and rebelled against what they said, often persecuting the messenger because they didn't like the message. God told one of those prophets, a man named Isaiah, that the people would be disinclined to his message. Hear what God says in Isaiah chapter 6. They keep on listening, but do not perceive. They keep on looking, but do not understand. And because of that, the people then said to these prophets, these representatives of God, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us what is pleasant. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Do you all see that? And the TV preacher said, yes. We'll do that. We'll tell you pleasant things. And we'll prophesy illusions. 
And we will fill stadiums of people that the New Testament says have itching ears to tell them what their ears want to hear. You can be glad and rejoice in the present. Great is your reward because when you are persecuted, it's an evidence that you belong to Christ and you can rejoice that you are his. And the apostles did that. Acts chapter 5, when they were hauled before a tribunal for preaching the gospel. The Bible says the apostles rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's because you belong to Christ you'll be ill-treated by non-Christians. Now hear this including falsely professing Christians who are actually non-Christians. And so you can rejoice that it indicates that you are his, and because you're his, you have heaven as your future. The Christian's reward is both in the present, but also in the future. And this word that's translated great in verse 12, polis, means immeasurably great. And the great apostle spoke of it in 2 Corinthians 4 when he said, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Friends, what are you living for? What are you pursuing? And are you prepared for persecution when Jesus says, It will come if you're mine and you stand for me? You know all the junk you're pursuing, we're pursuing? You know what's going to happen with it? It's all going to be burned up. When John D. Rockefeller died, someone asked, what did Rockefeller leave behind? How much did he leave behind? And the answer is every penny, all of it. He left it all behind. But here's what you want to be able to say at the end of your life. A life lived for Jesus, which will result in the kinds of things he has said in verses 10 through 12. You want to be able to say what the great apostle said at the end of his life in the last chapter of the last book in the New Testament that he wrote just before he was executed for his faith in Christ. Paul said this, I have fought the fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all those who have longed for his Appearing. Why are Christians persecuted? I tell you at the bottom of your outline. In your take-home truth, Christians will be persecuted because Christians are holy. Are holy. Set apart, different from the world, a world that loves conformity and hates holiness. We need God's help to live the way Jesus has taught in verses 3 through 9. Let's bow and ask him to grant that help. Our Father, I am cut to the heart as I read these words from the Master, God the Son, the Lord Jesus. As I contemplate the fact that persecution in its various forms, mild, moderate, and even extreme, come to your people who display your character. No, oh Lord, I don't want it. I don't relish the idea in any way. But, oh Lord, I want to be like you. And your people, from their hearts, want to be like you. And in being like you, you have told us what had happened to you will then happen to us. 
It will take various forms, but help us not to then be surprised by the suffering that the world inflicts upon those who are like you. And help us, Lord, to never turn back from the commitment that we have made to you in the face of difficulty. Help us in the relative ease of 21st century evangelical Christianity in America, in this church, Community Bible Church. Help us to be a people who are now in these good times preparing for times that may not be good in the future. Help us, Lord God, to be people who show the righteousness that you have given us in our behavior, in our interactions with those around us. Help us to be people who serve sacrificially, but who stand committedly, with conviction. Lord, as a result of that, help us to rejoice and be glad because we are like the prophets who have gone before, because we are like Paul, the apostle who has gone before, and most of all, because we are like the Lord Jesus who goes before. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.